Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I am Elin Fermier. Hello, everyone. And now we are going to listen to a super interesting interview that Eva made with Dame Sally Davis, the 1st of June. Hope you enjoy. Hi, dear listeners. It is my absolute pleasure today to bring to you a person that I personally have been looking forward to talk to for a really long time, almost since I started this career in the AMR sector, and is Dame Sally Davis. I had the pleasure to be introduced to her and meet her back in the beginning of May for the Uppsala Dialogue meeting. So Sally, I'm really, really uh, grateful that you took the time on your busy agenda to this interview. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience, although I know a lot of our listeners already are acquainted, at least with your name. Can you introduce yourself? Thank you. Thank you. And it's great to talk to you, Eva. And hello, listeners. So I'm Dame Sally Davis. I was a professor uh, looking after hematology patients and then went into the Department of Health to run research here in England, followed by becoming the UK's chief medical officer. And I retired from that to come here to Trinity College in Cambridge as the first woman master. But at the same time, the government asked me to continue all the advocacy work I do across the globe on antimicrobial resistance, AMR, and made me their special envoy on AMR. It sounds very grand to us, like a special envoy sounds like very very important uh, whatever the topic is when you hear a special envoys like we need to put effort onto this I, I really love it that they decided to go with that term so you mentioned that your your very early beginnings on your professional career was on hematology can you tell us the road of how you went from hematology to work on amr advocacy so I could have done any bit of hematology, but I actually specialized in sickle cell disease and inherited anemia of um, people from originally areas where malaria was common. So that means sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, India, places like that. And through that, I got to know very many people and patients in the community in in poor areas of London and to see how difficult life could be. And I took the understanding of living with an inherited disease and the difficulties of living in a deprived, overcrowded community where your opportunities were limited through in all the other things I later did. I actually got interested in antimicrobial resistance as chief medical officer, Of course, I'd seen it. I'd seen uh, drug-resistant infections in my sickle cell patients, and occasionally we had deaths. But that was when I was working in the uh, late part of the last century and beginning of this century, where we still had new drugs that we could use or, or medicines that would overcome it, and it's deteriorated a lot since. And I became particularly interested in AMR when I did an independent report, which the chief medical officer has to do on the state of the nation's health, and discovered that 
more and more people were getting these superbugs. They were suffering infections with resistance. And not only was that happening, but we had an empty pipeline. So the future looks very grim and bad if we don't take action. And when I asked all the experts, so what are you doing? They said, well, we keep telling people about it, but somehow they weren't able to advocate in a way that uh, politicians and those with power would listen. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I'm going to join you. As long as you do your technical bit and educate me, and the father of AMR, as far as I'm concerned, is Otto Kars, who helps me no end. We make a great partnership because he's technically superb and I'm pretty good at getting evidence into policy. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, kind of like that that gap that needs to be kind of filled in order to get the the political involvement that is needed to, to kind of change the world in a sense and in this topic also. So back in the days when you were chief medical officer and you started to realize that, you know, yeah, AMR is something that is very important, that it needs to have this power advocacy and the voice that goes across sectors and across the world. I assume the international action and reaction around antibiotic resistance and antimicrobial resistance wasn't as strong as I hope it is today, so that today is stronger than back then. Can you set the scene for us, for people out there that don't really know or are acquainted to how global governance and international action around AMR works today? Thank you. I started more than 10 years ago in this field, and I started on the human health side. And that was complex enough with many people really understanding how important it is. We've shifted that between all of us. But then as I worked in the field, I discovered how it's a one health area with problems in the food chain and how over 70% of antibiotics are used in the food chain. And actually the problems of what we're doing to our environment, either pooing and peeing out antibiotics or through effluent from manufacturing factories. So I think we have moved it forward. I've definitely learned a lot. So when we talk about governance, What are we talking about? We're talking about the checks and balances that help move things forward in the interests of people. So at the local level, it's if you're working in a job in a microbiology lab, do you know what your job is? Have you been trained in the standard operating procedures? Do you have the equipment you need? Are you doing it well so that you record the data effectively and it's sent out with a good turnaround time to make a difference to patients? And all of that governance is managed by the boss of the lab and the boss of the lab is managed by the boss of pathology who's managed by the hospital and the hospital board. But if you then think about it at the national level, what's the governance Well, through national action plans, the suggestion was that there should be a cross-government committee looking one health at setting targets for the different areas of human health, the food chain and the environment, measuring them and then reporting them transparently and taking action on them. And we all know that as a world, we're not winning on that. 
uh, well, 166, I think, national action plans have been written, only about just over 30 are actually being put into practice, and most low- and middle-income countries can't afford to. So governance is falling down there. But then you have the super-global governance, and that, uh, if you think about climate change as an analogy, is, of course, the COP, the Conference of the Parties, conferences agreed through treaty, supported by the United Nations, where countries come together at a very senior level to set their targets, to volunteer what they're going to do, to have transparency in how they're doing, to discuss the issues, to raise money to help the poor countries deliver it. Well, we're pretty well failing on that so far for AMR. We examined what was needed after the 2016 high-level meeting at the UN on antimicrobial resistance. An interagency coordination group was set up. And what did we recommend for governance? Well, we said we needed, like climate change, independent science, the IPCC. We have no independent science in this, except funded by funders and odd researchers are doing very helpful, but not formal and accepted by the countries. We said we needed a platform that brought not only the experts and the people doing things together, but brought in the private sector, those who make novel antibiotics or old antibiotics, those who run the food chain, the supermarkets, and importantly, civil society. Recently, FAO did set one up, but somehow it hasn't caught or attracted people yet. So we all need to help that work well. And then we suggested we needed a global leaders group. And actually, the UN did set this up. It is supported by what's called the Quadripartite, a secretariat led by the WHO in the WHO, but contributed to by the World Organization for Animal Health, WOA, the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, and UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme. But the Global Leaders Group has no real power, so it just, and I'm honored to be a member of it, advocates for change that needs doing and asks people to do things and agitates. That's not real governance, that is campaigning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very useful and an important role. But we don't really have global governance. What I want to see come out of the present discussions on the pandemic treaty is that AMR is recognised in it, recognised as One Health, as the grand pandemic that's ongoing and building momentum, and that we need surveillance all the time, we need innovation and access to treatments. What I also want to see is coming out of the high-level meeting 2024 on AMR at the UN in um, Heads of State Week, September, is a commitment to negotiate a framework of governance, including accountability and transparency for AMR that's truly One Health and that is not run by the organizations that it needs to be monitoring, but is truly independent, even if one of them hosts it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really want to see in terms of governance. 
a structure where people sign up to what their contribution is going to be to appropriate antibiotic use. So what do you think is the current limitation for this independent panel and this independent work that is so needed, as, as you very well articulated now? Is it a, a lack of understanding that is really needed? Or is it that they haven't really been able to put the right people together? Or what, what do you think is missing right now? The right people exist, so it's not that. Yes, understanding needs to be there. But actually, we need a commitment by the quadripartite to working to support others monitoring what they're doing. And for them, that, I quite understand, is difficult. We need the UN in New York to appreciate that this isn't just the business of WHO, which is what they'd like it to be, because then it would go away. It's broader And actually to recognize that pandemics impact on our social uh, status across the world, but our economic status. And this is the grand pandemic, so they really need to take notice. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, whatever we do, we'll need financing. And this is not a moment to go looking for much money. So we need to find the most cost-effective way of delivering such a global governance. Oh, I really, really hope that your wishes for, for this meeting in 2024 become, if not completely true, that there is a way there. And I think you, you mentioned it very clearly that at least to set up the commitment there to something to happen, if it's not right then and there, in the coming future, it is definitely needed. I would like to move on now in our conversation to... To your personal experiences, this podcast always advocate about the need of uh, understanding different perspectives and how powerful it can be to be inspired by other people's areas of expertise and viewpoints. And you have had a very successful career with different positions and focusing on different areas as well as chief medical officer. So I am very curious to ask you if you have gotten any particular inspiration or something has informed your work on AMR from your experience, for example, working in other public health issues like it could be obesity and alcohol consumption, for example? I personally am driven by wanting to find the evidence and then make a difference. So for me, this is very much about people. And when I talk about AMR, I remember my patients I remember my goddaughter who died before Christmas of drug-resistant TB in her lungs post-transplant for cystic fibrosis. I remember my former husband who died in the early 80s with leukemia who had untreatable infections. So it is very much based on the people, on my background of understanding how evidence and data can really shape what you're doing. But I also was very lucky to have lots of mentors who advised me on how to make things happen. And I learned that, first of all, you need not to be a lone voice. So I, for instance, in England, set up something called the National Institute of Health Research. I ran it for 10 years. When I handed it over, the um, budget was £1.3 billion pounds cash a year that I had under me. 
and to make sure that the budget kept going up whenever we had spending reviews in government I made sure that not just the researchers who got the money went and said to government hey we need this look I made sure they said because this is the difference it's making but I also got bosses of drug companies of pharma to say this is really good because that's why we do our trials here I got patients to go and say we like this because the evidence for treatment for us is making a difference. So I built coalitions that looked in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I had to be prepared also to compromise and to find the best endpoint for all of us, which might not have been quite where I thought I was heading, but the compromise and the learning from other people would make it probably stronger. Mm-hmm. And more feasible to actually happen, right? Because sometimes we put ourselves very high end goals, which is very nice to have, you know, there in, in the end of the tunnel kind of thing. But you cannot forget that on the road that you are walking, you are going to have to meet people's ends and, and necessities. And and I do agree that it, it's much stronger if we are together, but we need to talk to each other and we need to understand each other, which sometimes can be a little bit of a, of a challenge, I would say. You also held different positions, uh, like a practicing clinician, a policymaker, social advocate. How has your perspective on AMR changed and developed as you have taken each of these roles across the years? Well, You know, when I looked after patients, it was a problem and and the issue was very basic. So if that's the problem, what do we do now? And I relied on my microbiology technical colleagues who were all wonderful. I think my understanding and everything has been very shaped by my time as chief medical officer. When I worked closely with ministers and um, senior people, because I realized that what I had to do was frame the issue and tell stories in a way that made sense to them. So the patient voice is very important, but how I talked to them, you know, if you're technical or you harass them, you should do this, it doesn't work. You need to be able to frame it so it tells them a story they can relate to. Mm-hmm. And also they can relate to and they can somehow relate back to their constituents. I feel like sometimes they need to be told what story to tell the people if it's going to be within their policies or within their program. It has to be in a way that it speaks to the people. So by going Correct. through them, right? And they needed some ownership. So, you know, as you develop things, you have to give them credit for what they have sponsored and made happen. Mm -hmm. The credit has to be shared with all of those who've been part of it. Lovely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Talking about communications here, maybe we can talk a little bit about what is your personal perspectives on what is the best way to talk about AMR? with all its complexity and its one healthness and difficulty. And is there anything that you think is essential that it will make everything easier if we would maybe refer to it that way? I wish we knew the answer to that question. (laughs) If we did, we'd be well on the way to solving it. I think, again, it is about who are you talking to? If you're talking to patients, it's about super bugs. It's about 
the one in four patients with cancer who will get nasty infections that may not be treatable. It's about the 60,000 newborn infants in India who uh, get sepsis, a lot of which is drug resistant. So it's about framing it for governments, at least in the global north, it's often about security, the security of our health systems. I argue that antibiotics and anti-infectives are not only global commons and global goods, they are essential infrastructure mm-hmm. for society, in particular the health system. But imagine a school system where you can't treat infections. I mean, you know, we can't, it's so bad. So. For governments, security, health security, food security, environmental security works. For drug companies, we have to think about their profits and the fact that they're not going to make profits out of new antibiotics. But can we find ways where they won't make losses so they're still in the business looking after patients that they can then sell their other drugs to and make a profit from those? Mm -hmm. Everyone has a different take and we have to blend it to get the right story. Yeah, blended or as well as you were saying, it targeted, right? It really depends on what, what you're after. If you want to have financing for a specific thing or if you want, uh, I don't know, a pharmacist to understand that they should not be giving out antibiotics without having a prescription in a sense. It has to be different motivations and therefore different data to be presented, if anything, or different stories to be told. And I mean, it's really powerful, obviously, the framing of if we have an incurable disease that is communicable, there's incredible effects in all the systems around. And I think it cannot be more clear when we have been having to stay at home for months on end at the beginning of 2020 because of the COVID pandemic. It was a communicable disease that didn't have a similar treatment at the moment. So how do we react? Everything collapsed. Societies collapsed. Kids couldn't go to schools. It's such a big impact, not only economically, but culturally and to the livelihoods of everybody around that to me is just so hard that we cannot see the parallels or someone cannot see the parallels with not having antibiotics working any longer, right? Sometimes I just wonder, maybe it's because it hasn't happened. We are very bad at imagining a future as bad as it might be, right? I don't know. What do you think? I think you're right, but what we have to do is keep repeating the story as freshly as we can each time and never say, I told you so, or I've been through this before. Always freshly, openly, and then steadily people get there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. We should not give up. That's the, that's why year after year, it yeah, it's worth to keep sending the message, talk about it, re-talk about it, maybe think yourself how could you tell it differently which also will refreshen it up for oneself right when we're when we're working with this that's great i would like to to talk a little bit about your advice for young people going into the field of health policy which might not be very popular in itself but you know there are different moments in one's career, especially when you are working in the healthcare or even in research, where you might think about going into health policy. Do you have any, let's say, words of wisdom for someone remotely interested in this topic? 
Well, I think I'd make three points. The first is think why you want to do it. For me, I could have a bigger impact to make and try and help more people than just looking after individuals who were sick. You've then got to think about how you do evidence into policy. And there's an expression, we want evidence-based um, policy. So you've got to understand evidence. I actually moved on to evidence-informed policy. I want to know the evidence. I want to marshal it and make sure we have options that are evidence-based, but I absolutely understand that once I've done that, the elected people, the ministers, have a right to do something different if they want. And so why set yourself up for failure if they change it a bit and do evidence-informed rather than evidence-based? The third thing I would say is timing. You know, you can see a wonderful policy you want to get to happen and it just doesn't work or evidence that you, you think should go into practice. For me, an example in Britain at the moment is vaping. I was very clear as chief medical officer, I thought vaping was better than smoking and could help people stop smoking. But I thought we should outlaw it for children and make it only prescription available for adults. I was not listened to. And here we are some 10, 15 years later where people are talking about those things. I wasn't at the right time mm -hmm. making the right statements. And what you've got to do in the policy world is either decide this, I feel so strongly as I do about AMR that you just never shut up <laughs> or, okay, I've made my point. I'm going to wait. I'll put it back in if I see an opportunity of timing, but I'm going to use my time constructively on things where they will listen to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit of a strategy, right? You have to play the chess pieces in the right order. Otherwise, it kind of maybe won't get anywhere. And also perhaps who listens. And it's a little bit different than the very sterile and uh, clean area that is research where you just do the experiments, present the data and that is it. But what happens with the data later, maybe it does need a little bit more of a strategy thinking behind it. This has been great, uh, Sally. I have really loved to talk to you. Sadly, we are running almost out of time in our conversation. But I would like, before we, we say bye today, to open the um, audio soundstage for you in case you want to bring up Anything else that we haven't mentioned today to our audience or any further, maybe inspiration, um, quits and tits bits? <laughs> well, I'd say one thing that I always say to the young in, in Britain, that you have to learn to try things. You know, we only make a difference when we push ourselves and push the system. So my expression is hold your nose and jump. The water will probably catch you safely. And then the final thing I'd say is AMR matters so much. Think of the 5 million people every year who die with infections that are not treatable. Just go on working on it. Don't give up. Exactly. To give up 
it will win. Yes, that is a great way to end this conversation. Sally, I'm very, very happy to have been able to have these moments with you. And I hope that everybody out there enjoyed uh, listening to you as much as I did. Thank you so much. I hope to catch up with you somewhere around the world and see how governance is just getting better and better. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Eva. And I hope your podcasts go on as good as this. Welcome back from this, uh, I would consider, rather intense interview and full of passion, right? So, Ellen, what did you think about my conversation with Dame Sally Davis? I was so looking forward to talk to her for so long. Maybe I was a bit too excited as well. I don't know. (laughs) No, I think it was great. Both of you are so enthusiastic. So you just, I think that even if you don't really know about this matter, you will just be swooped away because so... It's so passionate, as you say, and that was very, very, very inspiring. And there was a lot of things to take away from the interview, I think. I have some some things that really stood out to me. First and foremost, I was so happy when she talked about working closely with experts. She was talking about working with Otto Cash. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how it makes so much sense that the people who are experts in the field, in the technical stuff, of course, they might not be the best at advocating for it. So bringing someone in like her... To actually do that, I mean, yes, it yeah. makes so much sense. Exactly. You can't be good at everything. Yeah, right. And I think her experience, you know, as a chief medical officer, mm. which some of you out there might not be very familiar with the position as a chief medical officer. Maybe some of you know the general surgeon in the US is kind of like a similar thing. So the chief medical officer in UK basically is the highest position in the government of a person that would advise what's happening in the government around health Mm. and medical issues. Mm -hmm. So she kind of, even though would be the person that would be that maybe uh, advice or Mm. things within the government, she would rely a lot into these experts, Mm. right? And Mm. I think she really understood the need for these people to talk to each other as well. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, and that is also... But she also talked a lot about to be aware about who you are talking to, right? That was a ma- communication, of course, was a main point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I th- also think that that was something that when she talked about it made a lot of sense. That how she has adapted the way that she presents things to who she's actually talking to, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, correct, correct. And how you like which data you you show and which and which histories you bring up like this. So like to bring not the only the scientist perspective but also bring up the like patient perspective, company mm-hmm. perspectives. Ah It was so inspiring. Yeah, it was great. One thing that I think maybe some people out there, especially that don't work in the medical sector, might not know so much about is uh, what sickle cell disease is, which is the background that she comes Mm, from. mm, And mm. sickle cell disease is a study through hematology because Mm. it's a disease of the blood. And what happens in sickle cell disease is a genetic disease where the red blood cells, which are the cells in our blood that transport the oxygen through hemoglobin, they are deficient in this hemoglobin. So the red blood cells actually, instead of being like a donut, like they are normally, they take a shape that is a bit like a crescent moon. Mm, And that's why it's called sickle, like the tool that you use on uh, Mm. farming. So that's what sickle cell disease. So just out there, it doesn't have to do with antibiotic resistance in particular, but obviously she comes from a clinical background. Mm, And you can see people with sickle cell disease might also sometimes have even more infections a person that doesn't have mm. such a disorder. So she obviously saw that thing from very early on in her career as mm. well. Mm. Yeah, I feel like the AMR has followed her 
through, like as you say, the entirety of her career, really. Mm-hmm. And how she also talked about how she has loved ones who has been uh, passed yeah. due to these kinds of infections. I mean, the subject, you can feel that it's very close to her heart when she talks about it. I kind of feel like, isn't it like that, that people that we work in this area, we we find ways to feel close to it as well mm. because we think we were doing something that's worth our time. Mm. We spend a lot of effort on it. And it's not just job, just no. a job where you detach from it, but there are things behind it. I was a bit of a starstruck, right? Because I wanted to talk to her for so long. She's this very powerful voice, regardless that she's a woman, you mm. know, which is also very important. But she's like this force of nature that has made people listen. Mm. I feel like thanks to her, some people started to listen to this particular Aria and all the work that she has done to make the global governance better. And I wanted to ask you, Ellen, because what global governance is and how is arranged around AMR is something that perhaps is not so apparent for people even working on AMR. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know if, because that was one of the goals with this interview for me, was also to spread the awareness that, you know, global governance is important Mm -hmm. and we need to have better global governance on AMR because that's the thing we've been talking for the past few years. Do you think that now is a little bit more clear to you what that is? Yes, for sure. I thought that I was like, you know, quite educated in the subject. But now when I listen, I'm like, ah, this is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. So I really felt like that opened up a door for me to better understanding in a good way and also in a scary way when you realize how much of a need we are, global perspective on it and the governance. But it feel, also feels very nice to know that people like Dame Sally Davis is actually working with it. Mm-hmm. So we're getting closer and closer to actually like a solution might not be the right word, but you know what I mean. A structure a that structure. can bring solutions, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, I, I really like Dame Sally Davis because she kind of like pokes where things need to be mm-hmm. poked a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think she doesn't shy away from saying the truth about things that are needed. And, you know, the fact that it's like we need an independent panel mm-hmm. that is not evaluating, you know, it's not part of the things that are getting evaluated. That's like the basis, right? If you're going to evaluate something, you should not have any conflicts of interest because you are part of the thing that is being evaluated. No, it has to be independent. It has to be something that is thorough. It has to be something that is documented, that there are goals, that there are KPIs, you know, key performance indicators of this, of this, Mm. of that. So we do have a structure that we can evaluate and that we can move forward. Mm. Otherwise, it's a bit like we say in Spain, a chicken without head. Do things, do things, do things. We don't really know where we're going. So, yeah, I loved doing this, honestly. It's been quite some years trying but finally it happened and it was so great to have her here also in Uppsala with the great contacts at React as well uh, because she was here for this dialogue meeting um, which we will leave also a link in the show notes so you can see what it was all about it and some more things about that particular meeting are gonna come up on the next episodes as well just like a sneak peek for the next things yes exactly Anything else you would like to uh, highlight or bring out from the interview itself? Well, I really liked what she finished off with, which I really think everyone should take with them. And that is learn to try things. <laughs> yes. I'll read, I think that that was inspiring. You should put that on a T-shirt or something because that is really what it's all about, right? Yes, no, that is very, very, very true. So, yeah, I think we can maybe with that learn to try things. We can try to explain the science that has been happening in the past month, right? Which Ooh. maybe wasn't that easy to 
to really communicate because the two papers that we're bringing out today are a little bit more heavy on the technology aspect of things. Mm -hmm. But we're going to try it, right, Ellen? Yes. Hold yes. on to your hats. <laughs> nice. See you on the news section. Welcome to the new section of this Yoon episode. And today we are going to start off with something that it's been on the news quite a lot in the last few weeks. It has been a topic of a lot of interest. And we have heard recently a lot of new applications of artificial intelligence. And in this case, of course, we're bringing it to antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. So Ellen, can you tell us what this very, very cool paper is about? Yes, I'm going to try at least. It's, it's a super fascinating paper. It's called Deep Learning Guided Discovery of an Antibiotic Targeting Acinetobacter baumani. Mm -hmm. And it was published in Nature Chemical Biology, the 25th of May. So it's a very recent paper. First and foremost, I want to say that in the like when they write about it in the news, it's a lot about AI. And I want to say that these they never mention AI actually in the paper. <laughs> Just so so we are all clear about that. They talk about deep learning. Yes. I don't really know if it's a difference, but just so we don't say anything wrong now. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. So they have looked into using uh, machine learning methods to find new antibiotics, and specifically now in this paper against Acinetobacter baumani, mm -hmm. which is a gram-negative bacteria that is causing a lot of problem in the clinics, since it can be get very resistant and hard to treat. Mm -hmm. So what they have done, I'm going to try to explain this in an easy way, because for me this was very complicated, but they have screened 7,500 molecules in the lab in vitro mm -hmm. to see to which degree these had um, growth inhibition on Acinetobacter baumani. Mm -hmm. So they created this inhibition data set, right? Then they took their model. So it's a message passing neural network. That mm -hmm. is what I was going to say. So it's a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a model. And they trained that model using this inhibition data set. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically you can get a... So the model could see the chemical structure and to which degree the molecule could inhibit anisotobacter mm -hmm. baumani growth. And then the cool part comes because then they apply this model to another data set of 7,000 molecules. And this model could then grade every molecule based on how well it could inhibit Acinobacter baumani. A prediction. A prediction, right. yes. Mm -hmm, so a prediction mm -hmm. of how good. And then they took the 240 best molecules with the best grade and tested these in vitro. So in the same way as they did with the inhibition data set mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in the beginning, so actually in the lab. And they got nine molecules that showed growth inhibition above Oh, all right. So that's quite of a high threshold, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because for other kind of a structural base or this exploration of the chemical space, you know, chemical libraries, to see if something might work, mm. what my understanding was that the cutoff for potential inhibition would be much less. So yeah. they were actually pretty stringent yes. to say, like, no, you only give me the things that would be very inhibiting. Yeah, or exactly. Oh. So they're very stringent about yeah, which ones cool. they picked. Mm -hmm. So then they picked these nine and dropped some of them based on different characteristics. So for example, they removed the ones that were very closely assembled with already existing antibiotics mm -hmm. because they were thinking that oh, there might already be resistance out there. So they didn't want those. And they also removed those who had who were already mentioned in the scientific or patent literature. So mm -hmm. things that were already, you know, being investigated. Uh -huh, yeah. So after doing this like cutting, they ended up with one possible antibiotic candidate. Well, that's good. One is much better than none, yes. right? <laughs> and this is, I think this is so cool. The drug is named now, I think it's pronounced 
Abausin. I'm sorry for pronouncing that wrong. But they have tried it in multiple different ways. Oh, uh-huh. mm-hmm. okay. So we are going beyond just the computer and then just testing for any vision. We are going more deep, right? Yes. And yeah. that is what is also so cool because they have actually proven that it works. Not in patients yet, mm-hmm. but they tried it on uh, 41 clinical strains of Asinobacti bomani and it worked great inhibition-wise. Mm-hmm. They also stated that they are looking for a narrow-spectrum antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Because, yes, we know if it's a broader spectrum, it will affect the patient's microbiome, and especially the gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they also tried it on different uh, other different strains. It had no effect. Mm-hmm. They tried it on gut commensal isolates. No effect. Oh, nice. And finally, they tried it in a mouse wound model, Vina Sinotobacter bomani, and it inhibited the growth very nicely. All right. So it, it worked not just in vitro, but also in vivo in yes. the lab. So we're getting we're getting there, right? Maybe it's not yet an antibiotic no, per no. se. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a compound that can mm. inhibit the growth of Sinotobacter bomani, mm. both in vitro and in vivo in the lab. We're Mm. getting there, right? Like the steps. And then, of course, there are a lot of steps between this and actually treating patients with it. Obviously. But they are also very highlighting that, yes, this is cool. They have found something. But this is also a big step in computer-based approaches to accelerate drug discovery. Yeah, so it's a methodology. It's a discovery or like development of something that could be super useful in order to find new things. And it could be for new antibiotics or it also could be for other things as long as the process and the methodology can be applied, right? And which I also think was so, so cool is that they said that, yes, uh, you can have this data set of uh, inhibition to Mm -hmm. try train your model on. But imagine that you also train your model on like a library of compounds that is toxic or non-toxic to the human cells. Yeah. And then you combine those two. So you will have an even broader model that both know what inhibit growth and what is and is not toxic. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool because then you can integrate to the model even more information from different angles. Because I do remember from this same group, maybe like three years ago, mm-hmm. was it 2020 or something like that? They did publish another article also using deep learning. And I remember it was a big hit back then. Mm-hmm. And they found a potential uh, compound, they call it aliasin, similar to the 2001 Odyssey, Mm -hmm. Odyssey, HAL, the machine. And then the problem was that it was hypertoxic to things in the cell. Mm. So like, yeah, you can, there is this joke that you can kill bacteria with a handgun. Yes, you can kill bacteria with a handgun if you want, Mm -hmm. but that's not really the point. What we need is things that are selective Mm. against bacteria, but not us. And then even more going forward, like you were saying, now this works just in in Asinetobacter. Which is pretty great. Yes. Right? Uh, I think, I really think if you want to go deeper into the technical stuff, you should really read the paper. (laughs) It is super, super interesting. And I hope that we will see more of this in the future. Yeah, for sure. I I think it has to be, obviously, I I mean, I think your presentation was great because you went right to the things that are important about this, you know, (laughs) like this is the thing, this is the essence, this is how we did it. Obviously, there is so much math and computational Mm -hmm. um, things behind it. But on the other end is to, to simplify it too much, these discoveries also doesn't work either, you Mm. know, because now on a personal title, I'm going to tell you what happened with this article and my mom. All right. Mm. So here comes the story. I wake up one morning and I open my email and I see an email from my mom saying with a link and all capital sayings, is this true? This would be amazing. And then I click the link and it was a link to a Spanish newspaper, which is reputable and it's 
you know, a place where, yeah, you will get good news. Mm -hmm. And it was a coverage of the publication of this article because it's been all over the news and the press mm -hmm. releases. And the title of the article, it basically translated, comes to AI will solve all diseases. Ah. And then that was the title. And then you have the little entry that is three sentences. It still it says, researchers somewhere have used artificial intelligence to find antibiotics in plural, mm. that can kill resistant bacteria, this would be the end of antibiotic resistance. Oh. And I I just, you know, my mom, she knows we work in this, yeah, and yeah. then she was so excited to send me this. <laughs> and I just replied to her, like, it was 8 in the morning. I'm like, Mom, I'm so your email. Um, I'm going to read the paper in there for the podcast. But I would say that it's not that. So... Like that, to me, it, it tells you, you know, you need to be accurate. Maybe you don't need to know the details. That is a, how the neural network model works. No. But you cannot just say artificial intelligence is going to solve all diseases. That no. is the other way of like, mm. no, because you're also kind of taking away the the, the importance of, of the value that the, this paper mm. brings to research and to science and the use mm. of computational based uh, methods. Because, yeah, it's not going to solve all diseases. Yeah, it's not going to give us maybe right now thousand antibiotics that would kill or resist our bacteria. But still, this stepping stone and knowing how yes. to work with it mm. in getting this abacin tested and it works in that way it's, it's still amazing in and of itself right yes. so you don't have to make it more than it is no because it's already super cool and i think the authors are very good at highlighting this that yeah. this is a this is a a step on the way and a contribution to implementing this kind of computer based Methods. It's a wonderful. Science. It's a wonderful article. Mm. Some of the press release coverage that is out there is good. I will mm. select one that I trust what they're saying to put it out there for you guys if you don't want to read the original article because it's a bit dense. Uh, but I have to say also that I talked to a colleague of mine that works on computational biology, and uh, he quickly read the paper. And I said, "Can you give me your opinion as a computational biologist? Do you think this is like you know good cutoffs and things mm, like that? Mm. Because he knows more than than mm. me." Yeah. And he was like, no, he was like, this is such a good paper. Mm. They did. They put cutoffs that are even higher than what we would normally do in computational biology for heat uh, discovery. No, no, this is like a great mm -hmm. work. So, yeah. So read it or read the press release that Eva will link. Exactly. Because it's super exciting. <laughs> Thank you much for bringing us this article. Thank you. I, I really, really like that you were like, everyone is talking about this. Let's just cover it. So that's very, very nice. Great. But so now we have another very interesting paper. Eva, what have you read this month? Yeah. So this month, I, I kind of maybe went the easy route. Not really was because I wanted to read an easy paper, but <laughs> it turns out that there was an interesting paper published in PNAS, which I think I mentioned in another uh, episode, is the President of the National Academy of Sciences. And it's a brief report on microbiology published on April 24th of this year. And the title of this article is Simple Optical Nanomotion Method for Single Bacterium Viability and Antibiotic Response Testing. And the reason why I decided to talk about this is not because a lot of people are talking about it out there, like your paper, but it was because I think finding new ways to diagnose and to test for antibiotic susceptibility testing is very interesting. Mm -hmm. We in Uppsala have three leading companies that work with three very different methods. There's a lot of research happening here and anything that is 
different, I find it incredibly interesting, mm. especially because we still haven't found a very cheap, very easy to use and reliable method mm. to test first if it's a bacterial or a viral infection and then to get antimicrobial susceptibility testing quick. Mm -hmm. So I think anything that kind of gives to that area is pretty cool and worth talking about. Absolutely. And also PNAS is a very good journal. So it this is something that we can trust that what is out there is good. But it's a brief report, which means they pr present very briefly what they work, the results. There is not so much of discussion about how it kind of relates to the rest of things in the literature. Like just to say it has 12 references. So it's a short paper. But Let's go to the to the thick of it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So what they are using is a technology that I found really interesting, which is this group work in the past proving that just because something is alive, it vibrates. Oh, yes. All right. So that is the underlying thing. And actually, I read some of the papers they published back in, in the past. And the idea is that they developed this so they can look for life signatures in other planets. Mm -hmm. So things that are alive versus things that are dead have uh, a vibration of sorts. That right? is so fascinating to me. Yeah. I've never heard about it before. So the, the thing about this article is that can we use that basic thing to then put bacteria under antibiotics and then very quickly see... Do they continue vibrating the same way when they were alive? Or do they not vibrate anymore? So that means they were killed, so the antibiotic mm. is working. Mm. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Very cool, right? So what they did, yeah, was to test if this works for motile, non-motile, gram-positives and gram-negative bacteria. They use different kind of strains like E. coli, Mycobacterium smartmartis, and some lactobacilli as well. They were able to see that they can actually use this with a device. And the cool thing about this is that you only need really the bacteria. You need a microscope, an optical microscope, which is the kind of cheapest or the most common type of mm. microscope. And you need either a camera attached to it or you can use a mobile phone as well. And then the software that they have developed that will analyze the images and then will give you yes or not, alive mm. or dead type of thing. So in principle, it could be very cheap. Mm. It doesn't need to have a special controls to it. It doesn't need to use other extra strains. It doesn't need to use attachment to a particular medium. So it would be very like straightforward. They tested this by using antibiotics. They also tested this by limiting the access to nutrients of the bacteria mm. in mm. the media, which also kind of will keep them kind of dead. So yeah, it's a proof of concept. This works. This might become potentially a technology that can be used to treat. Yes. Obviously, this is very early on. So for example, if you guys at home are asking things like, did they test this with the bacteria from a wound sample that mm. is infected? Mm -hmm. No, this is not really. No. Yeah. There are things that still need to be worked on mm -hmm. to make this something that it can be used in the clinics mm -hmm. or something or somewhere. But the cool thing is that, you know, it kind of it kind of works. Yes. And it kind of works quickly, although one to two hours, it could be debated if it's that fast or not fast, because what it makes antibiotic uh, susceptibility testing take time sometimes, it's not really the method in it of itself or the analysis, is the waiting times between taking a sample, what happens with that sample, how that sample gets to the microbiology lab, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Mm. But, but I mean, it could be, since, if I understood it correctly, this method is not dependent on the... Division time of the bacteria. Yeah, not dependent on growth. No, on growth, Correct. exactly. So, I mean, and we have some um, 
like tuberculosis, for example, that grows extremely slowly. Yep. So, I mean, that susceptibility testing can take, if I understood it correctly, like weeks. Yep. So, I mean, in those kinds of settings, that this would be amazing, not having to wait for them to grow. Yeah, I think you are exactly correct about what kind of new thing this brings to the table. Mm. Because the fast antibiotic susceptibility testing, they are fast because they maybe look at growth in a much more sensitive way than just with your bare eyes and having to look at a plate and a colony. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the microfluidics uh, work done by both gradient tech, which is microcolony based, or astrego, which is single cell growth. Still, you need to wait for the growth. And the growth is not the same in all bacteria, right? So having something that is independent of growth, Mm. it's pretty damn good. Also, as you say, it's cheap. We can use it potentially then. Now this is all a potential future. But what if we could use it in like low and middle income countries? We don't. We are not depending on this fancy, expensive, like technology, right? That's right. So you, everyone could use it, and that would be so cool. I mean, it's still it's not as simple as let's say a lateral flow test. No. Like no. you know, you all at home probably have tested with COVID. You put a sample. Mm. It gives you a line you don't need any anything technology based mm-hmm. here you know microscopes available there are microscopes that are, have been going for a really long time the software you need to have either something that can run software computer yeah. or a phone or something but potentially it could be that you only need it once and mm-hmm. then you just can take samples and you can run them and mm-hmm. it would be pretty pretty nice yeah yeah that was cool yeah, super it. cool and enjoyable paper. Even if it was short, it was super interesting. I, I like short papers, yeah. I have to say. Straight <laughs> to the point. Sometimes it's just nice to get, you know, that's the information. Mm. Then, yeah, you can either use it or not use it, see where it goes. But yeah. that is the key thing to report, mm-hmm. right? But uh, your paper was uh, long work with a lot of different parts and a lot of validation. And it was also pretty interesting. Yes, for sure. Lovely. So with that, we say bye to you for this month of June, which we are coming to you a little bit later than usual because of um, logistics and and times to do interviews. And Dame Sally Davis is a very, very, very busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> but we will go back to you now in the month of July for the next one. And then we're taking a little bit of a summer break mm-hmm. over August and then back to you in uh, September. I, ca- I cannot. I don't want to think about September being already here. <laughs> no. Let's listen. enjoy the summer, right? Yes, summer first. All right. Thank you so much, Aline, for this month. Thank you, listeners. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.